Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. What was the most popular porn search term last year? According to Pornhub's report, it was hentai. This term has been near the top of the list for years, and it seems to be on the rise. So what is hentai, in case you're not familiar with the term? According to Pornhub, hentai is a subgenre of the Japanese genres of magna and anime, containing overtly sexualized characters and sexually explicit images. In other words, put simply, it's a form of cartoon or animated porn. So how did this come to be such a popular thing in the first place? What are the origins of hentai? And why do some people prefer animated porn to live-action human porn? That's what we're going to be talking about today. I am joined once again by Ashley Weller, a human sexuality and health psychology professor at Chapman University in Southern California. Ashley also works in mental health clinical research and has more than 15 years of experience in sex education. She also has a podcast called What's Your Position, which tackles issues surrounding sexuality, relationships, life, and love from a comedic yet educational point of view. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The future of sex tech is here. The Handy, made by Sweet Tech, is an automatic stroker designed for self-pleasure. It's a one-size-fits-all device that can be coupled with your masturbation sleeve of choice. Sweet Tech has a wide variety of sleeves to choose from, designed to mimic realistic sensations of different partnered activities. The Handy offers precise speed and stroke control, which includes the exact stroke length. It can be remote-controlled, and you can even sync it up with video to mimic what's happening on screen. So what you see is what you feel. To get your hands on The Handy, find the link in the show notes or visit thehandy.com. That's thehandy.com. Healthcare training programs usually include some information about gender and sexuality, but few of them give you adequate training if your goal is to become a sex therapist or educator. This is where the modern sex therapy institutes can help. MSTI offers a PhD program in clinical sexology, as well as multiple certification programs in sex therapy and sex education for mental health and medical professionals. All trainings can be completed 100% online. Whether you're looking for a certification or simply an opportunity to build and expand your knowledge base, MSTI can help. For more information on their programs and offerings, find the link in the show notes or visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. Hi, Ashley, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I'm honored. Third time's the charm. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So today, we're going to be talking about animated porn, and there are so many interesting things to discuss here, but let's start with the origin story. So I suspect a lot of people might think that this is a pretty new or recent thing, but it actually has a pretty long history. So can you tell us what you know about when and where hentai originated and maybe what some of the early forms of it looked like? I can. So hentai actually, in and of itself, the word hentai and how we in Western culture view hentai is relatively new, starting in around the late 70s. But Japanese erotic art goes all the way back, back into like 700 BC. And when we look at 
art that we know of from the Edo period in the 1600s, we see a lot of Japanese artists using wood blocking techniques for their art. And you can see a lot of this art if you just look up Japanese art. Japanese erotic art, you will see many references to what is called shunga. And shunga just means erotic art in Japanese. Shunga also comes from traditional Chinese medicine manuals. And in those medicine manuals, genitalia and sometimes facial features would actually be larger in the manuals so that you could see up close for that genitalia, for that piece of that body. And so when artists from Japan took that idea and put it towards erotic art, they would elongate penises or engorge breasts or make facial features be a bit more dramatic than normal. And they also tended to put people into positions that were almost fantastical, positions that human beings can't really get into unless you are a contortionist. And so this idea of a fantastical world where you can bend over backwards and take a penis that's 10 feet long really stems back to this Edo period in Japan. Unfortunately, there was a lot of pressure from the government at the time to crack down on this erotic art. And there was a movement in 1722, the Kyoho Reform, which banned all new sales of books, publicated works, paintings, woodblock art, anything that could be published by a human being had to be approved by the city council. And anything that was deemed obscene or erotic was immediately nullified and void. And what ended up happening is Shunga went underground. And we all know what happens when we shame and stigmatize sex, and it has to go underground. That we certainly do know. So it sounds like there is a very long history here where things have kind of evolved and morphed and changed over time. But so the roots of modern hentai, you can trace that back centuries, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really an outgrowth of kind of other forms of erotic art. So that's another way to kind of think of it. And erotic art has kind of always been around, you know. As soon as human beings started creating art, we kind of started making erotic art, right? Everybody likes to draw penises. Like, (laughs) it's just sort of everyone's favorite thing to draw. And a lot of the times when people think of hentai, they think of, you know, animals, they think of monsters, they think of sea creatures. And One reference I I like to talk about when it does come to current hentai is the reference to tentacle porn. And this actually stems all the way back to 1814, a very famous work of art by an artist named Hokusai created a painting called The Dream of the Fisherman's Wife. And if any of your listeners want to look it up, it's actually a really beautiful piece of art. It's painted in um, traditional reds and whites, and it portrays an octopus giving cunnilingus to a woman. And this is considered the first time that tentacle porn was presented as erotic art or erotic fantasy. 
And I can bet that a lot of people are going to go look up that painting (laughs) right now or right after the show. (laughs) I hope so. Now, part of the reason why hentai grew in popularity over time, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, is because there were restrictions on pornography in various ways. If we kind of travel to more recent years, like there have been limits placed legally on pornography in terms of what you can and cannot film with humans and so forth. But hentai was also a way of kind of getting around some of those rules and restrictions because it didn't involve live human actors doing sex acts. So can you also tell us a little bit about how various legal restrictions on porn are actually part of the reason why the modern version of hentai has grown and become so popular? Absolutely. So after World War II, Article 175 made all pornography illegal and actually included punishment by death, as well as a fine of up to 2.5 million yen, which is about 500,000 US dollars. Even owning this type of pornography, producing this type of pornography held such a steep penalty. Now, most of the time it did not lead to that, but there was these heavy, heavy ideas that you should not have any of this in your possession. And it mainly came from westernized ideas. After America occupied Japan, after the war ended, they brought these ideas that Japanese porn and Japanese erotica was bad and inherently wrong. And Japan kind of stuck with this idea. And they said that there was no way they were going to show frontal nudity, pubic hair, or penises in any live human porn in Japan. So for a very long time, if you were to watch any Japanese porn, you would see pixelation, or as I like to call it, the scramble on Channel 99 when we were 13 years old. You see this pixelation over the genitalia of individuals because you can't show penises and you can't show pubic hair. What this eventually ended up doing was in the late 1970s, uh, we saw one of the first hentai animated features be created using hairless young women and animals and octopuses as phallic creatures able to penetrate these young women. Because they're hairless and because the exaggerated features of these young individuals is such that makes it look like their eyes are huge and they're innocent and they don't have pubic hair, which makes them look younger than they are, we've actually seen hentai be compared to child pornography, which is a bit upsetting for a lot of people. And there is a genre of hentai called Lolita or Lolo porn, which is actually banned in the United States because the characters are very representative of what young individuals would look like. But because they wouldn't allow pubic hair and they wouldn't allow penises, people had to get around that in any way possible. And they started creating even more fantastical worlds of beasts and galaxies and aliens and any way that they could formulate penetration without penis and any way that they could show vagina without pubic hair and they would do it. Yeah, I think this goes to show that anytime you place restrictions on human sexuality, that people will find a way to adapt, right? So part of the reason that hentai flourished was because you had so much censorship and so many legal restrictions on the more kind of traditional forms of porn, if you will. 
So can you tell us a little bit more about how hentai has changed over time and what it looks like today? So you kind of alluded to this a bit, saying in some ways it's gotten more fantastical and so forth. And, you know, we had that introduction of tentacles. But what does modern hentai look like? Like if you were going to go search on Pornhub or one of these other porn tube sites right now, what are the popular themes that you're going to see? So there's a lot of different types of hentai. Um, There's actually hentai that is targeted towards the LGBT community, and that is futinari porn, which is when women obtain both masculine and feminine features. So they may have very, very large phallic penis-like structures, and also you can see vagina as well without pubic hair. Their breasts are very large, but they're also very muscular. In this type of porn, we also see a lot of dominatrix and a lot of BDSM. There's also a hentai porn called Yuri, which is focused on two women. It actually means two love, and it's the focus of two women falling in love and being together sexually and intimately. And then there are also a lot of hentai that's focused on video games that have come to pass in the past. So, for example, Final Fantasy released its remake of its video game back in 2020. And after the release of that Final Fantasy video game, searches for the characters of that Final Fantasy video game went up 7,631% on Pornhub in the following three days. So hentai can actually take on the form of any sort of cartoon that's around right now. They can take on Family Guy. They can take on South Park. They can merge the two together. They do a lot of alien porn. They do a lot of monster porn, a lot of demon porn. So these beasts and these ideas that can't be reimagined in real life. You can't have a lot of the same type of sexual interactions as you would with two human beings. They have a lot of porn that involves fantastical beasts. I'm getting all Harry Potter on you, but like centaur porn or um, tentacle porn is actually a really, really big hentai subcategory. Yeah. You know, this just has me thinking about how, if you can think of it, someone has made porn for it or someone Rule 34. Rule 34. (laughs) You know, and I'm thinking about an article I wrote for Men's Health a couple of years ago where I was talking about some of the trends in pornography at that particular point in time. And I know that at the time I wrote that article that Fortnite was a very popular game. And so Fortnite-themed porn became extraordinarily popular. And I wrote a companion article for my website after Pokemon Go became this like worldwide (laughs) phenomenon, if you remember that. I still play. What do you mean remember? I still (laughs) play Pokemon. Some people do. But as soon as that came out... There was Pokemon porn, right? Absolutely. So it's like there is literally porn for everything. And almost anything in the popular media, popular television shows and so forth, people find ways to sexualize it. And I'm also thinking about how I started watching The Boys on Amazon Prime recently. And, you know, it's a show all about superheroes and supervillains and they created superhero porn, you know, sort of as part of that show. So it's just so interesting, like the many and diverse aspects of human sexuality. A lot of it too uh, with hentai 
does stem from the cartoons that millennials and Gen Zers were watching as they were growing up. So there was a show on MTV late at night after like 11 p.m. They had Liquid Nation, I think is what the cartoon segment was called. And there was a show called Aeon Flux, and it was drawn in the style of anime. But this woman who was the hero um, was very Funtari looking. She had muscles. She had very large breasts. She's very like Laura Croft, Tomb Raider. But she also engaged in sexual acts on this show. And then moving even more forward, Teen Titans, which was a show on Cartoon Network had an offshoot show called Raven. And that show had so many sexual undertones to it that parents started getting a little frustrated with it. And it actually got pushed to the late night Cartoon Network time slot where near South Park was for big kids. But even shows like SpongeBob. I mean, if you if you look <laughs> at the name, you know, Sandy Bottom, he lives in a pineapple if that's not code for swinger, I don't know what is. And crab, he works at Krabby Patty. I mean, there's so many sexual undertones and adult themes in cartoons. It wasn't a far jump for this generation, especially millennials who consume the most hentai porn. Um, it wasn't a far jump for them to look back at what they were looking at as kids and teenagers and prepubescent people and then going through puberty, seeing these characters that were a little more voluptuous in places and having crushes on their favorite characters, why wouldn't you look them up when you are old enough to do so on Pornhub? And it just sort of spiraled this idea of Japanese anime becoming one of the most popular ways to watch porn. Yeah. You know, this has me thinking about how when I scroll through my Instagram reels, I for some reason, often see SpongeBob clips that are just what? like taken totally out of context and <laughs> they're very sexualized. And it's like, oh, y- uh, yep, there are sexual overtones there. You know? Absolutely, completely. <laughs> Another reason that people are really into hentai is because it can push boundaries for people where they may not necessarily be able to see something like a woman who has a penis. And Funtari is actually, it means hermaphrodite in Japanese. I'm not a super huge fan of that word, so I don't necessarily want to use it again. But it is this idea that a woman has both full penis and full vagina and very large boobs. And for that, a lot of people aren't seeing porn like that with real people. And for people who are intersex or people who are pansexual and who people who are transgender, who want to experience pornography that sort of represents who they are, they can look to hentai to kind of understand the realms with which they can go into and the places that the mind can go that the physical body usually cannot. Yeah, you can portray much more genital diversity, body diversity, diversity in all ways when you're animating porn because Mm -hmm. there are no limits kind of in terms of what you can do. And what you just said there leads nicely into my next question because as I mentioned at the top of the show, hentai seems super popular, at least on porn sites. But in research that I did for my book, Tell Me What You Want, I surveyed people about all kinds of sexual fantasies they might have, and that included having fantasies about cartoon or anime characters. And what I found was that 27% of my participants, about one in four, said this was something they had fantasized about before. And 4%, about one in 20 approximately, said that it was something that they fantasize about often. So a lot of people have had this fantasy 
fantasy. But there are some sizable gender and sexual orientation differences in terms of interest in this genre. So for example, just 12% of heterosexual women in my sample said they'd ever had this fantasy. But if you look at lesbian and bisexual women or heterosexual men, the number is twice as high compared to straight women. And if you look at gay and bisexual men and transgender and non-binary folks, the number was actually closer to 40%. So you're almost getting to close to half who say they've had the fantasy in that case. So sexual and gender minorities seem to be more drawn to this based on the data that I've collected. So I'm curious if you have any other stats on hentai viewers that might speak to who's really into it and their demographic traits or characteristics. So interestingly enough, there is not a lot of research on hentai at all. Like a lot of research on pornography just centers around pornography in general. But I did find a study that was just published in September of 2022 in Science Direct, and I'm kind of proud of myself for finding such a recent study. I feel very relevant right now. Um, And they actually looked at hentai use and attachment styles, which I thought was really interesting. They looked at individuals who watched hentai porn, individuals who watched porn that was not hentai-based, and individuals who didn't watch any type of porn at all. Interestingly enough, most of their research was not significant. They didn't find any sort of significance in aggressive behaviors in people who watched hentai porn versus people who watched regular porn. That wasn't any different from people who watched regular porn versus non-porn watchers. What they did find was that women who consume hentai porn are more likely to have anxious, avoidant attachment style than individuals who watch non-hentai porn or individuals who don't watch porn at all. And I thought that was super interesting because as an attachment style, anxious, avoided attachment, you're typically more likely to be a little bit more dramatic when it comes to your emotions and trying to get the attention of your significant other or the person that you go to for your safety um, whenever your emotions are high. And so I was actually going to ask you, why do you think that women who watch hentai are more likely to have anxious avoidance? Ashley, you're like a mind reader because I was going to ask you (laughs) this question. So in my research for Tell Me What You Want, you know, I looked at what are the associations between interest in hentai in our sexual fantasies and our attachment styles. And I found the same thing. It actually, I don't believe, was limited to any one particular gender. There was just an overall association where if you had a more anxious attachment style or a more avoidant attachment style you had more fantasies about animated or cartoon characters. I think I know. Pick me, pick me, (laughs) pick me. I'll tell you briefly my idea first. (laughs) You can see if it makes sense and add anything else you want to it. But with regard to anxious attachment style, I also found that people high in the personality trait of neuroticism, so people who have more emotional instability, don't deal well with stress, they tend to have more hentai-themed fantasies as well. And I think for the anxiously attached people and the neurotic folks, that the appeal here is literally that you're taking humans out of the equation, right? Because human interaction, like there's that potential for rejection and like there's all of that anxiety and security, everything else we're bringing to it. But if you're bringing in this fictional character, 
I think in some ways that can be more comforting. And so that allows you to relax and enjoy the experience. And I think for the avoidantly attached people, the reason they have more of these fantasies about fictional characters in general, regardless of whether they're animated or not, is because you're minimizing the emotional connection that you have with your partner. Because if it's not a human partner or not a real person, you know, there's more emotional distance between you and them. And we know avoidantly attached people have more discomfort with emotional intimacy. So I think it makes sense, like why you see this for both anxious and avoidant people, but maybe it's a different explanation for each one. So I was actually going to say two completely different things. So I'm so glad (laughs) you said that. I was going to say for the anxious person, I feel like they get more comfort out of watching something that's familiar to them. And so for an individual who is anxious, watching their favorite shows, listening to their favorite songs can be a sense of comfort. And so watching something that's familiar, like a porn about Final Fantasy or a porn about Yu-Gi-Oh or a porn about Pokemon, whatever the case may be, these characters may give them some sense of comfort and relief in their anxious style, whatever they may be. And for the avoidant, I feel like because hentai is so desensitized that the girls in hentai are innocent and that they are typically put into situations where their um, decision-making is taken away. And for the avoidant, it's kind of like, cool, no emotions are involved. This person is just doing what they're going to do and I can enjoy myself without having to worry about a real person being affected by those emotions. Because when it's a cartoon character, no one is involved. There's no human beings. No one was hurt in the making of this porn, right? So I feel like both of us probably have a little insight into why anxious and avoidant people might be more drawn to hentai porn, drawn, (laughs) drawn to hentai porn than other porn. And I think we're saying the same thing ultimately is that for the anxiously attached people, it's about emotional security and comfort. And for the avoidantly attached people, it's more about the distance and the lack of emotional connection and intimacy. And I can totally see how what you're saying could be the explanation for some anxiously attached people where, you know, this cartoon character that you feel a strong bond with, that can be safe because I don't know who this cartoon character is. It could be Bugs Bunny. It could be Pikachu. It could be anybody. But, you know, basically like you have that, what we call parasocial relationship with these characters that you've encountered in the media and they've never rejected you. They can't reject you, right? Because they don't exist. They take place in this different world. And so, yeah, I can totally see how there could be that emotional security element. I also wonder if there is anything in the way of like your very first maybe experience with sexuality. So for example, watching Eon Flux, do you remember that show by the way? I remember the name, but it was okay. not a show that I watched. I remember like watching MTV's Undressed and like yeah. I, I watched the overtly sexual shows. <laughs> I would stay up late and uh, later than anyone in my family and that would come on and I would feel so guilty for watching it. And there wasn't any like actual sex, but you could tell there was heaving of bosoms. There was things happening behind closed curtains, then shadows and things of that nature. And as a 12 and 13 year old, this was really my first exposure to anything sexual and it was a cartoon. And so 
as a young person, if what you're very first exposed to is Teen Titans or is Raven or is the new Eon Flux or is Final Fantasy, and there are these sexual overtones and undertones, and that's what you're first exposed to sexually, do you then seek that out as an adult in your porn consumption? Maybe, but now you have me thinking about how I grew up watching the Golden Girls with my grandparents <laughs> when they were babysitting us. So by that logic, I should be into older women. <laughs> Are you watching geriatric porn, Justin? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> so, you know, I can see how some of those early experiences can certainly shape people, but our sexuality is also fluid and flexible at the same time. Yeah. But another way to look at this is that some people do seem to have I guess what you could call a more fixed sexuality, where something at a very young age just kind of has this imprinting process on it, and it becomes this lifelong interest. It's very resistant to change. And some of these individuals just don't really tend to develop other sexual interests because that becomes very core, very central to their sexuality. So I think that what you described can happen for some people, but if that is what happened to all of us, we could all (laughs) trace our sexuality to some early childhood show. Mine would be the Golden Girls, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk more about the appeal of hentai porn. Now, I mean, obviously, part of the appeal may reside in legal restrictions on live action porn. So for some people, this literally might be the only kind of porn they can really access. And I was working on revisions for the third edition of my human sexuality textbook recently, and I was working on the pornography chapter and looking at pornography laws around the world. And, you know, in the 1980s in China, like if you were a pornography producer, you could be put to death for Mm -hmm. doing that, right? Yeah. And even for sex work, if you were a brothel owner or something like that, like you could be put to death as well. Like, so sometimes the restrictions are so severe on pornography that you have to find these kind of creative ways or outlets of still finding sexual fulfillment. So I understand that that is kind of like, the path for some people is that it's literally the only thing they can watch in terms of porn. But other people have a choice when it comes to porn. You could watch live action porn, but they gravitate toward hentai instead. So let's talk about some of the reasons for it. Now, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the types of hentai porn that people watch, and an argument could be made for both sides. There's a lot of people who say that they would rather watch hentai porn because it's more ethical, because there aren't human beings being exploited, because there aren't underage girls in a hotel room being forced to have sex, and there aren't people, actresses and actors who are being underpaid or not paid for their work. And so a lot of people consume hentai porn um, because it's a way for them to kind of say, you know, fuck the man, um, (laughs) pun intended, uh, because they want to watch porn that doesn't exploit a real person. On the other side of that, hentai porn crosses so many barriers. There's impregnation porn with hentai where demons and octopuses and monsters impregnate people. There's underage hentai porn where you really do know that it's a child and it's made to seem like it is. Um, That's Lolita type of hentai porn. 
But then there's also really beautiful porn, hentai porn that is between two men. It's drawn so beautifully and there's so much visual stimulation going on other than just two bodies coming together. There's glitter and there's rainbows and there's color, there's sound and music, and there's a lot more plot to hentai porn than there is to normal porn. They actually have series of hentai that a lot of people follow. One of them is called Bible Black, and it's one of the most well-known hentai porn series. It's one of the places that a lot of people start when it comes to hentai. And there's a cult following with this. They put out seasons of this hentai porn, and you follow these characters through their exploration of their sexuality, their sexual fluidity, their body parts change. They become men, women, animals. And there's so many themes that are explored through hentai that just cannot be explored in real porn. Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting elements and aspects of this. And, you know, it goes back to something you were saying earlier about how sometimes you don't see yourself or your interests depicted in mainstream porn. So, for example, with regard to somebody who might be transgender, yeah, there is a lot of trans porn, but it's usually made for the cisgender heterosexual male gaze. It's so tropey. It's so tropey. And so I can see how that can not be appealing to mm-hmm. a lot of trans individuals. And also for a lot of porn that's out there, a lot of uh, heterosexual women are not turned on by mainstream porn, again, because it's made by men for men to cater to the male gaze to that certain sort of fantasy. And so some people might be more drawn to different types of pornography because they want something different than what mainstream porn is giving them. But if I look at my research on sexual fantasies, I think it also points to a couple of other potential explanations. So with regard to why there might be a gender and sexual orientation difference in the appeal of cartoon or animated fantasies, part of that might be that men and sexual and gender minorities have more taboo sexual fantasies on average than heterosexual women. And you can depict more of these taboo sorts of things in an animated version of pornography because you're not as bound by certain restrictions and so forth. And ethics, yeah. Yes. (laughs) You know, so that might be part of it. And then it's also the ability to show fantastical things. You know, I have a lot of participants who have fantastical sex fantasies that take place in outer space and with aliens and tentacles and all these other sorts of things. And there's really not another way to depict that unless you've got like a big Hollywood budget special effects kind of thing. (laughs) And even then it's not going to look as good. (laughs) No. And they're not going to spend that money on porn because Hollywood doesn't want to go there. Um, Now there's also certain features of the individual that might draw you to porn. So we talked about attachment style, but one of the other things I find in my research is that people who are more introverted are drawn to hentai more than people who are extroverted. And I think that is interesting as well but it might be a reflection of the fact that extroverts have this you know, really high need for social connection that extends into their fantasies. And so it's important for them to have like real human mm-hmm. partners connection, in their fantasies, right? but yeah. maybe less important to introverts. So yeah, I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on other things that might draw people to hentai. Again, it's always going to be complex, multifaceted in terms of the appeal of any given porn genre. I think that with the differentiation between introverts and extroverts is a really good point. Uh, Extroverts are 
out there. They want to be involved. They want to see, they want to talk, they want to touch, they want to feel, they want to know that the person that they're engaging with is having a good time or that they're having a good time. And when it comes to hentai porn, a lot of it is in Japanese. And so you're not hearing the dialogue unless you speak Japanese or you want to read subtitles while you're rubbing one out, which is typically not what people <laughs> want to do. That doesn't turn me on for some Not at all, <laughs> actually. Subtitles is not one of my kinks. Um, but so for an, for an introvert to be able to engage in a sexual arousal that doesn't involve another person, it involves a cartoon character, I think goes back again to that anxious attachment style. I also think that for individuals in the LGBTQ community, hentai really has honed in on different genres of porn that they can go to, and they have made it so beautiful and so accessible. It's almost real. Like with real live action porn, when you see lesbian porn, for example, which was knocked off the number one spot by hentai in 2021. When you see lesbian porn, I actually did a podcast with two of my friends, Stephanie and Ashley, who are lesbian. And I joked with them. I said, do you guys watch lesbian porn? And they go, absolutely not. It is absolutely (laughs) not representative of anything that we do in our sex life in any way. And so a lot of times I think that when we look at porn that is modeling what the porn lens says is this is gay porn, this is lesbian porn, this is transgender porn, it isn't. It is not even close to what those individuals experience on a normal, regular sexual basis. And hentai really tapped into that. And the series that they have for lesbians, for uh, gay individuals, for transgender individuals speaks to them because it looks like what they're doing in their sex life. And so it turns them on more than mainstream, heteronormative, cisgender lens, male gaze porn that we're all so accustomed to. Thank you very much, Pornhub. (laughs) Yeah, so hentai can be much more inclusive, much more diverse in a lot of ways and reflect different experiences. And that might be a big part of the appeal for a lot of people. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of folks are curious about what are the implications of hentai becoming this super popular porn category? So for example, I'm thinking about the popular debates that happen around sex dolls and sex robots and porn more generally, where you have a lot of people who are concerned that this is just another way that the adult market is going to hurt our sex lives because people are going to come to prefer fantasy to in-person sex, and so it's going to push us apart. And then there's also the related concern of if it's modeling things that maybe are questionable in terms of consent or that depict sexual aggression in some way, that that's going to reinforce sexual violence and sexual assault and so forth. So I'm curious for your take on this. What are the implications of animated porn for our sex lives? Look, I think that porn as a whole is always ahead of its time. It's always ahead of the technological advances. Porn was on walls in Pompeii, right? There was penises on walls. There's, you know, vases that are shaped like the torso of a voluptuous woman. Porn on paper when the printing press came out. Porn in a little viewfinder, a little clicker viewfinder. Porn always knows how to get ahead of the media market. So there's always going to be new porn. And when it comes to virtual reality and video games, porn is right next to that. It is 
up against that market and it knows its market. It's targeting the people who are watching cartoons, targeting the people who are playing the video games, targeting the people who are doing VR. And if people want to say that animated porn is going to be the downfall of society. I have news for you. Um, I believe the latest statistic I heard was that 78% of all live pornography depicts violence or aggression towards women in some way. And I don't know what the statistics are on hentai porn and violence and aggression towards women, but I think that when we have such a broad category like hentai, when you have animation and you can do anything you want, there's a cartoon called Steven Universe. Have you heard of this? Not familiar. Okay, so it's a children's cartoon, and it was the very first cartoon to feature an on-screen transgender wedding. And it was a huge big deal. It was in 2012, I believe. And it's a children's show. And so children are exposed to adult themes constantly. If kids watch Law & Order SVU, they're exposed to rape or sexual aggression. If children watch the R. Kelly documentary on Netflix, they're exposed to rape. If children watch anything on Netflix, God, Dahmer on Netflix is going to expose them to adult themes. So yeah, kids are exposed to a lot of adult themes, but these beautiful, fantastical, large universes where anything is possible at least we know cartoons aren't real. Unfortunately for a lot of children, pornography is where they get their sex education. And when they look at real human beings engaging in sex acts and engaging in violence towards other people, I feel like the real sex, the real live action porn is going to have more long-lasting effect and long-lasting damage than a cartoon when most kids know from a young age that's Scooby-Doo and he's a dog and dogs don't talk. So when they see a cartoon in pornography as an 18-year-old, they know that's an octopus. Octopuses don't fuck, right? They can make the correlation <laughs> between the two, right? Now you got me thinking about octopuses fucking. But <laughs> <laughs> I really would like to know how that happens, though. Like, I'm actually, might, I might look up how do octopi procreate. Is that the plural for octopus? Octopi? I don't know, but I think people are going to be looking up octopus porn after this yeah, I for hope several so. reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective. And when it comes to porn of any type, you know, I think we're failing in not teaching porn literacy. And Thank that, you. that's ultimately the problem is that we're not giving people sex ed and then they're turning to porn as their source of education but they don't have any context in which to interpret it. And I think that is where porn can be potentially dangerous. It's just because we don't know how to contextualize what it is that we're seeing. So if we had better sex ed in my ideal world with Ashley, where we'd be in charge of the sex ed curriculum. Can I be in charge? Can, can I, can I make some, I want to make some sex ed curriculum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we could rule job. the world, Justin, we could <laughs> rule the world. <laughs> Octopus but, porn for all. <laughs> <laughs> Octopus porn and hot sex for all. So 
We're running short on time, but I have one last question for you, which is what you take away from the enduring and growing popularity of hentai. So for me, I see it as yet another piece of evidence that human sexuality is so incredibly flexible in terms of how we meet our sexual needs. We are inventive and creative when it comes to our sexuality and very adaptable. Like our sexuality can change on a whim based on what is available to us. And so I think that this is just another sign of that. So what do you think? What does the popularity of hentai signify to you? I think the popularity of hentai signifies that we are adapting to restrictions that are being placed on media that's being put in front of us, right? So Japan had these extreme censorship laws that stopped them from being able to show physical sex on screen with pubic hair or penises. And people will get around censorship laws in any way they can. So censoring sex, stigmatizing sex, and shaming sex doesn't stop sex. It actually just makes it go underground and sometimes can make it be a bit more harmful than intended. I think that with the rise in popularity of hentai, what we're seeing is something of a dual track, right? We're seeing a group of people, millennials and Gen Z, who grew up with Japanese animation and grew up with this overly sexualized idea of Japanese individuals and and the drawings and the eroticism that comes from that. And I think that we search out what's comfortable for us, Rule 34, in pornography. What I also see is people are willing to explore different areas of their sexuality and go to the extremes and see what their minds can come up with and and go out on a whim and go to space. Go have sex with aliens in your brain because, I mean, we might have sex with aliens at some point. I think hentai and other forms of animated porn are going to be much more prevalent in the coming years because of the boundaries they can push, but also because of the inclusivity and the beauty that they can create. They can create entire worlds for people where a screen snippet of Jessica Drake, who I love, just getting railed for five seconds is what you see in real life porn, where Bible Black is is a series where people actually follow along and take investment in these characters and watch them go through life as well as watch them fuck. And I think that it's going to be part of the more normal script for us to see animated porn in the future. It is going to be fascinating to watch, undoubtedly. Excited. <laughs> so thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Ashley. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? I would love to. So I have a podcast called What's Your Position? You can follow us on Instagram at What's Your Position Podcast. You can email me at What's Your Position Podcast at Gmail. And we are also on YouTube. Just search What's Your Position Podcast anytime, anywhere. We also have a phone number that you can call and leave a voicemail. It is 513-69- Six nine sex. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's five one three six nine six nine sex. If you leave me a voicemail, I will play it on an episode. I have to feel like that phone number is intentional. It was in totally intentional. <laughs> I picked that number. 
<laughs> Oddly number enough, like that does not come to you accidentally. It does not, and it was a Chicago area code. And I'm like, I don't even, I don't even know what the Chicago area. I don't even know what this is. But I was like, I just want the last numbers to be sixty nine, sixty nine sex, and that was the only area code that offered that the last seven digits to be what I wanted. So thanks, Chicago. Well, go get out your phone and mash sixty nine into the keypad, and you'll <laughs> be connected with Ashley. Woo. <laughs> so thank you again for your time and thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast visit my website sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where i hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show you can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates i'm on twitter at justin laymiller and instagram at justin j laymiller also be sure to check out my book tell me what you want thanks again for listening until next time 